And I found this particularly with families who feel like they really need to prove or, you know, show up as the caregiver who's dutifully caring for their loved one. They don't want to admit that it's hard for them or that they sometimes miss doses. And so kind of normalizing that I think is is really important and really helpful. That's Dr. Stephanie Nathel, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins Medicine. In this episode of Moving Medicine, Dr. Nathel is joined by Dr. David Barron, Professor of Psychiatry at Western University of Health Sciences, to assess two patient scenarios that will offer insight into caring for the behavioral health needs of older adults. Moderating this conversation is Dr. Karen Dionysotis, fourth-year psychiatry resident and incoming geriatric psychiatry fellow at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Here's Dr. Dionysotis. I will be discussing with both Dr. Nathel and Dr. Barron two patient scenarios that we hope to provide information regarding caring for behavioral health needs of older adults. Um, We will be discussing... um, cognitive changes, medication reconciliation, and and the importance of reviewing medications, as well as uh, engagement of both the patient as well as the family member or any caregivers present. For patient scenario number one, we're going to talk about Ms. Smith. Ms. Smith is an 85-year-old woman who comes in with her daughter for follow-up. The daughter expresses concern that mom was always the person who kept the family calendar and planned family get-togethers, but recently, other family members have had to step in to take the lead on planning. Mom seems a little irritable and withdrawn. Her daughter is worried that Ms. Smith has the beginnings of a dementia and wants to know what can be done. So I'll I'll turn this over uh, first to Dr. Nathal. Hey, thank you. Um... So as a a primary care geriatrician, this is kind of a a bread and butter patient scenario for me, um, that there's not just a patient who I'm seeing, but also a family member, um, and that sometimes the family member is the one with more concerns um, or different concerns than the patient. Um, And that's kind of always one of the, the first things that catches my attention is any discrepancy between what, um, a patient and what a family member might be expressing, Um, and kind of what is driving their concern. So, you know, you mentioned that she's worried about dementia, um, but the the signs that um, she's noticing are irritability and and being withdrawn, which may or may not be a sign of dementia. And so initially as a geriatric medicine clinician, um, I know I'm going to have to kind of address the patient, of course, also the family member's concerns and tease apart the difference between these symptoms and, and the concern about the dementia. Um, but Dr. Barron, I'm, I'm curious how what some of your initial thoughts are in hearing about Ms. Smith and her daughter's concerns. Well, Stephanie, I think you raise a really important point here. And in my four decades now dealing with geriatric patients, oftentimes the family has some very specific observations but rarely do they sit down and ask the patient what's going on. So I think to your point about really understanding the whole patient and the family is really getting a sense from mom, from the patient on what does she think going on? Does she have concerns? Um, You know, maybe she's irritable because her family members keep bothering her. Uh, So we, I think it's really important from a primary care perspective that we allow the patient to not feel like getting old is like, tantamount to becoming sick or it's a disease state. You know, aging is by no means a disease state. So I think the point you made is really a good one. And that's really sitting down and asking 
the patient, Ms. Smith, in this case, uh, does she notice any changes in her memory? Um, what are the things that are going on at home? And really getting a good history from her. And then absolutely, as you said, bringing in the daughter and to see if what we're really seeing is potentially symptoms of some other neurocognitive issue, a mood issue, or maybe just something that's going on at home. As a family physician, do you have time to do these things? I know as a psychiatrist, we're always given a lot more time than our colleagues in primary care who oftentimes don't have uh, the length of time that I have in a clinical session. What's been your experience in, in a primary care setting? Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. That's always kind of um, the elephant in the room um, when I'm seeing older adults is that there's a lot to cover and never enough time to cover it all. Um, and so, you know, I'd, I'd be lying if I said, oh, yeah, of course, you know, I always have plenty of time to pull out a comprehensive depression screening form or, um, you know, cognitive assessment to go through um, with every patient at every visit. I think, you know, you kind of do the best you can to, to narrow down a differential diagnosis and, and really listen, like you said, to what the, the patient is saying. Um, I think, you know, from a geriatric medicine standpoint, um, initially one of the, the things that I really try to do is, is kind of cast a broad net. So cognitive symptoms and mood symptoms are highly intertwined um, and are often, you know, significantly overlapping with other medical concerns um, and also sensory changes that can be related to mood and also to cognition. So I think, you know, the things that I would initially focus on um, with Ms. Smith and, and her daughter are, you know, as you said, how she's feeling and also what's been going on lately outside of just these symptoms. Have there been any changes in her hearing and her vision that have made her more withdrawn and less like to, likely to participate? Has she had any other major health issues um, that have resulted in changes in, in mobility or her ability to do things on her own that might result in a change in how she's feeling about herself and her future. Um, you know, I, I keep adding to the list um, of, of things to cover in a visit. And, and so I think you're right, Dr. Barron, that um, one of the key challenges in talking with patients and families like this is, you know, casting a broad net to make sure that you're considering you know, all the aspects of what might be contributing to these changes, um, but also really staying focused. Um, and I don't think that that necessarily um, means that you need to complete every comprehensive, you know, screening or assessment form. Those certainly those tools can be helpful. I would even go a bit further than that. As someone who has written psychometric tools, so I, 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 I'll put that out as full disclosure. I really am not a huge fan of having a patient come in, particularly my elderly patients over the years, and starting to do a whole host of psychometric tools. It kind of pathologizes the setting. I much prefer to have a patient come in and just have a chat with them. And if we have the experience and we know what we're looking for, we can actually get a lot of information without turning it into, you know, I'm being tested now. Um, a woman of this age, you know, as you really pointed out very nicely, you know, is she not able to drive anymore? Maybe she can't get around. Uh, she, you know, her family members aren't able to take her to the store. Uh, so I think I really and, and would like to share with our with our audience today that don't feel like you have to come up with a number for a mood disorder or a cognitive or a mocha, whatever it might be. I think as good clinicians, we always want to sit down, have the patient feel like we just want to get to know them. We want to hear what's going on. I always take the time in an elderly patient 
to uh, compliment them in an appropriate way um, so that they feel like I'm there for them. And I wanna hear what's going on and I'm not taking the side as it were, maybe of the family member who's making accusations as it might be, but get a real sense of what's going on, not only in the patient's mind, but within the family. And, and, and I found that, um, that not focusing on the, I almost always get enough information to fill something out afterwards, but really uh, filling out a psychometric isn't what really I think matters. It's getting to know the patient, getting a sense of what the real issues are and how we might be able to intervene as a clinician. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Are if you I might ask, uh, sorry to interrupt Dr. Barron, but if I might ask in, in kind of what scenarios would you anticipate is a time um, for a patient to be referred outside of maybe a primary care clinic to a specialist such as yourself, Dr. Barron? You know, I think it's the same way in, in all of medicine. And that's when you feel like something is beyond your abilities, maybe, you know, hey, I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable talking with elderly patients who might have early neurocognitive deficits, or I just don't feel like I have the time. It doesn't mean that you're an inadequate or a bad physician. In fact, I always respect my colleagues who will call me and say, you know, I, I think there might be a little depression, or I think it might be a family issue, or maybe some early neurocognitive things. I really just don't have the time in my practice to give this patient, my patient, what I think they need. Plus, you know, it's been a while and I haven't really kept up on the, on the latest and greatest in this area. So I, I think it's a very simple answer to a complex question. And that's when you feel you are unable to give what you would like to give to your patient, either from time or, you know, listen, in family medicine, you know, there's a lot of material that changes very quickly. It's hard to keep up with everything. I would certainly want any referring, uh, particularly family physicians who I have such tremendous respect for is I always respect those who say, you know what, I, I, I have a really good colleague who kind of specializes in this and really understands, and I want the best for you, and I'd like you to see my colleague, as opposed to, you know, having, you know, something that just doesn't quite feel right for you. Again, every doc always wants the best for their patient. Yeah, I, um, I agree. That's kind of the rule of thumb that I use for, for so many situations, um, and I really appreciate that. Um, you know, you, you understand and, and, and are open to the fact that um, as generalists, you know, we're not, we don't have all the, the same expertise that you do within your, your field. Um, I think something that can be particularly challenging um, around referrals for depression or cognitive impairment um, is that the providers within psychiatry and psychology in so many communities are uh, very few and far between. Um, and there can be a lot of restrictions with, um, you know, who will accept which insurance. Um, and in a number of areas, I know in the area where I practice, a lot of the, the therapists um, don't accept insurance at all, which, which can create a lot of barriers. Um, in case others who are listening to this have also um, 
Brendan, to this, some some tips that I can think to share just because, you know, connecting um, older adults to, to therapists and psychiatrists is so important, um, are you know, developing a relationship with some um, therapists and psychiatrists in your area. Um, so you can, you know, reach out to them when you're having issues with referral. Often they know who's accepting new patients within their specialty field. Um, also, your uh, Department of Aging in your community um, may have uh, community resource lists of where to get um, mental health assistance. Um, and I do, although um, I completely agree with you, Dr. Barron, that, you know, I don't know everything um, and I um, need to refer out when I don't know and when I need help. Um, I also think that um, a lot of times with older adults, they they prefer to get kind of some of their initial treatment in primary care. And so I do think that, um, you know, it is okay to, to, to start offering some initial therapy, um, which doesn't necessarily have to always be medications. Um, it also can just be kind of inter recommending that someone increase their interaction um, or their socialization um, and increase exercise. Um, I don't know if you have any other tips, Dr. Barron, as someone who um, is on the receiving end of many referrals. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's a couple of points I'd like to pick up on that are very good. One is you actually, as a primary care physician, have a whole lot more information than I'll ever get. You know the family, you've worked with them, uh, stuff that I'm never going to get an initial intake. And particularly in older adults, you know, the stigma of mental health issues is unfortunately alive and well. I mean, I think it's improving post-COVID and people coming out and talking about, you know, it's okay to not be okay. But I think in, 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 the, in many of our elderly populations, only crazy people went to see a psychiatrist. Uh, and that exists. And, and I think um, even referring an elderly patient, already uh, you get a biased view of things because they don't wanna look like they're crazy. You won't always get the full story. So I'm a big fan of working with my primary care colleagues uh, behind the scenes and say, you know, maybe here's some things you might want to consider. I think keeping them in, I am really loath to start medication. If, if there are very specific symptoms that seems to, that would benefit from maybe pharmacotherapy, but that to me is almost never on an initial visit. Uh, you know, we want to get to a chance to see what's really going on. As, as was mentioned at the very beginning, what might be causing these symptoms? Is it an interpersonal action? Is it a problem of being lonely, which is an enormous issue in the elderly, even though they might be living in the household, uh, you know, maybe they see how busy their family members are, maybe they can't come over. So I think it, it really, really is critical that um, from a primary care perspective, which is where it should happen, that we get a good history of what's really going on. And again, as I started out by saying, not pathologize it right away, really find out what's happening because in more cases than I've seen uh, in another direction that uh, you don't need to add another medication onto, which oftentimes is a fairly long list as patients get older. So um, I really like the fact that primary care doctors should feel very comfortable um, and the fact that they really understand what's going on with the patient, with the family, they can get that history, um, relate to the patient in a way that they're just there to, you know, to deal with their, their overall health, of which mental health is a part of that. Uh, and, and, and I think having, to me, it's more important that I have primary care docs 
who will just call me and say, you know, I, I've seen Mrs. Smith today. And, you know, family came in and said this, I'm a little worried. And I might just say, well, maybe you might want to, you know, here's some things you might want to follow up on. Uh, not that I'm looking to avoid the referral, but I believe the nature of that relationship with the primary care doctor is such an important one. And as you say, many parts of the country, um, you know, they're just not an availability of mental health experts, uh, long waiting lists, people don't want to go there. You know, with telepsych, that might be improving a bit, but I really like it staying in the in the family medicine setting. That's yeah, right. I agree. I um I'm I'm lucky enough to practice um in a practice where we have an embedded psychiatrist, which I realize is is not the reality for so many people. In some ways, I feel like I have won the lottery. Um, and the patients who see me have, have won the lottery because we, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, Dr. Barron, there is kind of a stigma, particularly um, for older adults who grew up in a generation where, you know, accessing mental health care was not considered, you know, normal or usual or, or, or healthy. And so, um, as I said, I, we have an embedded psychiatrist in our practice so that I can and refer older adults, and they actually can see the psychiatrist within the same clinic where they see me. Um, and that just removes so many barriers. They don't have to find some other clinic or park somewhere where there's a big sign that says psychiatry and all the emotions that that may, may bring for the person. They just come in, um, you know, to their usual primary care office and just see a clinician who isn't me. And then being in the same office, um, as you were saying, Dr. Barron, it just makes it so much easier for me to communicate with the psychiatrists and share my thoughts and observations so we really can move care ahead. Um, so although that's not the reality for most people, I think trying to work, work towards that in, in the patients who I do need to refer outside of our practice, reaching out to develop a relationship between myself and the, the psychiatrist, introduce myself and open the lines of communication, I think is really helpful for, for everyone. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think just focusing on quality of life, you know, as opposed to focusing on some symptoms, which may or may not be related to, you know, psychopathology, oftentimes, I think not. But if we just focus as the quality, what goes into the quality of life of an older individual? I mean, all of us have parents or grandparents. If we're not there ourselves, I'm approaching that, but I still got a little ways to go. But what goes into quality of life? It's about having relationships. Uh, oftentimes in the elderly, you know, they've lost, uh, you know, maybe their spouse. Uh, many of their friends aren't there anymore or they're infirm, they can't get out or they've passed away. So that sense of loneliness, but quality of life shouldn't just be, and I really like to focus being more on the positive aspects of life, but, you know, mobility, as you mentioned, you know, maybe they can't drive anymore. Maybe it's difficult, you know, going out and walking around the mall or they feel embarrassed to have a walker. So I think it's the things that we quote are the simple things which aren't really simple at all. But what goes into the quality of life for a human being and someone as they get older when maybe they don't remember quite so well? I mean, age related, you know, I tell my patients, you know, they, they say, oh, I, I can't remember. I said, you know what? I can't remember things either. Sometimes, so it's 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 not like we're saying, oh no, it's perfectly normal to remember nothing. But I, because we've had such a focus on you know on dementia, it's been in the new you know with President Reagan, and you can go on and on. Uh, I think people really worry that if they forget something, that you know they become a self fulfilling prophecy. And I think our job as physicians, which we all took an oath, first do no harm, 
having a patient you know, do all kinds of fancy memory testing that they might not do well, that we're all really losing it. I really like the idea of saying, well, you, it's terrific how you're able to remember things so well. I mean, it never hurts to make the patient feel good about things. Again, we never lie to a patient, but let's focus on the positive. And I think as a family physician, as a primary care physician, if we look at what goes into the quality of life, sleep, appetite, energy, relationships, I'd like to ask people, what, what do you have fun doing? If someone says, I have fun doing nothing, then that's a whole different conversation I'm gonna have with them. So focusing on the positive, uh, it's actually a field called positive psychiatry, which I'm very active in, but I think it's a good thing. If we think, what would we like? We'd like people who say, boy, you know, if you ask them, well, what did you have for breakfast? No, I can't remember. Well, you know what? Um, what do you think about eggs? What are your favorite kind of eggs? I mean, there are ways we can get a history where a patient doesn't feel like they're being interrogated. And I really, as a psychiatrist, have a, have a hard time when my colleagues, my students or colleagues make the patient feel like they're being interrogated. I think you really need to take a bit more time with the elderly patient um, and let them talk a little bit more. I always look to schedule a little bit more time because they don't want to feel right. If they feel rushed, they'll close down. They'll just say what they think you want to hear. So I think a, a real pearl for the audience is to you know, sit down, give yourself a little more time. Don't be typing at your computer. Just sit down, look at them, have good eye contact, nod with them, connect with them as a human being. Thank you both so much for um, really being so thorough about this case. Subscribe to Moving Medicine today. To learn more about the Behavioral Health Collaborative, visit ama-assn.org slash BHI collaboration. Thanks for listening.